Navigating the relationship between the college and the town of Grinnell can be tricky, but it helps to take a look at the past, where we've been, and how we've changed. In some ways, together, and in other ways, not so much. We could take it slowly, or we could get insane. This is All Things Grinnell. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. On today's show, we talk with Dan Kaiser, Emeritus Professor of History, about the evolving relationship between the town and the college. From racist housing covenants and Japanese internment to botanical gardens and reduced tuition for Episcopal students, we'll discuss some episodes from the 1930s and 40s that show how this complex relationship has played out over the years. That's coming up next, after I remind you that the information and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of Grinnell College. Dan Kaiser taught Russian history here at the college for many years, but it wasn't until later in his career that he really took an interest in local Grinnell history. Sparked by his interest in the Ricker House in Grinnell and the people who lived there, Kaiser turned his historical lens on the town and college. And it's that interest in local history to which we owe today's episode. We'll talk to Dan about three stories that give us a little glimpse into the changing relationship between the town and college, and tell us a little bit about each in the process. First, we'll discuss the opening of a foundry in town. Then we'll explore how the botanical garden became the site of the Episcopal Church, and we'll finish with the story of when Japanese-American students came to Grinnell to study and escape internment camps during World War II. These aren't the typical stories from the canon of Grinnell history. They aren't the defining moments like the 1882 cyclone or the shift to co-ed dorms. But they offer insights into the relationship that the town and college continue to negotiate with each other to this day. When J.B. Grinnell founded the town bearing his name, he made plans for a college, even a prospective syllabus. But it wasn't until 1858 that those dreams were fulfilled and Iowa College transplanted from Davenport to Grinnell. At the beginning, the college more or less matched the makeup of the town. Small, white, religious, conservative in many respects, they were largely in sync. Fast forward more than 150 years, and that dynamic has changed. We'll get there, but first, I asked Dan to take us back to those earlier days. A happier time, perhaps, Mm -hmm. when the college and town were mostly in sync. Yeah, I suppose it is in in the way in which uh, any sort of unicultural society is happy, which, you know, you don't have too many uh, obvious points of disconnect. Uh, There were a few in the early days, uh, but uh, by and large, it was a a world that uh, was small. For one thing, it was a small town. It was uh, dry. J.B. Grinnell was no fan of alcohol and so on. (laughs) And he wrote one of these covenants, which affected almost all the property downtown and so on, that... uh, prohibited the sale of alcohol and so on. So in a way, it was a very uh, monolithic culture, which uh, changed. Uh, it was already changing with the arrival of, uh, particularly after the Civil War, the arrival of African Americans in town, it changed things. But uh, I think the more dramatic changes occurred in the 20th century. We've got some manufacturing, and particularly as uh, immigrants from other parts of the world began to show up in in Grinnell. And then these changes inevitably affected how the college related to the town, I think. Yeah. So let's get to the first story that you mm-hmm. talked about. Um, Grinnell College builds a foundry. Mm-hmm. So what's the context here at the college at this time? Why would they be interested in building a foundry? Well, I, I think uh, it, it's a fascinating story to me but because I think the college itself 
uh, didn't have the idea themselves. I mean, they, they were struggling with money. They were looking in the early 1940s. Uh, the college had a decreased student population. They had emerged from the Depression uh, with a reduced student enrollment, but also with financial resources that they were insufficient for what they wanted to do. Uh, there was a huge debt that had hung over the college from World War I time, actually, when John Maine, President Maine, had arranged to have the dormitories in the North and South Campus built. It was a huge investment. Mm-hmm. But the debt hung over the college for a long time. And mm-hmm. so there were real financial uh, problems here. And I think that uh, with the arrival of the new president, Sam Stevens, in 1940, uh, there was an opening to try to do some things differently. But the foundry was really the idea, I think, of this Marshalltown uh, industrialist uh, who had connections with the college, but it was really his idea to produce uh, the foundry in order to assist Lennox Industries, which is what he uh, what he owned. Norris was his name, uh-huh. and it was his idea. Yeah, D.W. Norris. Yeah. He was a 1892 grad of the college, mm-hmm. owner of the Marshalltown Times Republican and the, the Furnace Company, which is what the foundry was creating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to give a little more context for mm-hmm. the, you know, the struggling nature of the college, because I think it's so easy for students and other people that are involved with the college nowadays to think, you know, we have this giant endowment and, yeah. oh, the college has just always been, it's followed this trajectory since 1846. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like we've always existed and we always will exist. But for a while, I think it was, it was more tenuous than that. And, yeah, it sure was. Uh, the figures that you talked about, in 1921, there were more than 750 students enrolled. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in 1943, that was down to 316. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. the demographics of that were also changing as it was um, mostly female at that point as well. But um, Henry Conard, who we'll talk about, and he makes his finds his way into all these yeah. stories somehow. <laughs> yeah. um, but he, he wrote a letter at the time that kind of described the precarious nature of the college. He said... At the college, there's increasing difficulty from year to year, which cannot go on much longer. But what can be done? The dormitories must be paid for. Of course, the Grinnell Foundation could be declared bankrupt and the buildings sold for what they would bring, but that would carry with it the ruin of the credit of Grinnell College. Yeah. It's hard to realize. Uh, I think I may have mentioned when we were talking about this before, but when I came to Grinnell, I became friends with Grant Gale, who began in college in 1928. And uh, Grant was uh, retired by the time I knew him. He'd been here 50 years or so. And uh, we were worrying about what our salary increases were going to be for the next year. And Grant said, well, you know, in the 30s, what we took was a salary decrease, not Uh a salary increase. (laughs) And so from his point of view, you know, we were living high. And this is before the college really uh, struck it rich as much as it has recently with the endowment. But yeah, those were desperate times. And the college was certainly on the edge. So this man, D.W. Norris, mm-hmm. proposes that the college build a foundry and lease it to mm-hmm. them. What were the details of the arrangement and how did it work? Well, Norris's idea, I don't understand the taxation of this, but he was intent on uh, securing uh, evidence that they were renting the foundry. That rent was somehow or another going to enable him to save money on taxes. So he proposed giving to the college a, a first dose of money, about $25,000, and getting the college to raise at least that much money from the local townsfolk in order to invest in the foundry. And the Lennox would undertake to rent it for the first five years, to lease it for the first five years, with the option to purchase it at the end of that five years uh, as part of the deal. 
And so that's uh, how it proceeded. The college was able to raise that money. Local uh, businesses, by and large, I think, were satisfied with contributing to it. I think they collected about $30,000. And so things went forward very quickly uh, from that point on. And the, the founder was up and operating by uh, 1945, I think it was. And uh, it provided an initial boost of new jobs that simply hadn't existed in town before. Uh-huh. They break ground in 1945, right smack dab in the middle of World War II. Mm. How does that factor into the story? And are there enough people in Grinnell to work at this factory? Well, the, the war had affected the town and the college uh, dramatically. Stevens, one of Stevens, uh, President Stevens' uh, ambitions or, or accomplishments, I guess, was to try to supplement the mainly female student population in the war years by contracting with the military, the United States military, in order to establish an officer training school on campus and yet another uh, detachment of um, army personnel so that uh, it was not uncommon to see, uh, I think there was something about a thousand uh, army personnel then on campus. That was a way of trying to keep money flowing through the coffers. But uh, the population in town in uh, Grinnell in those years was not a very large uh, population. There were not large factories. This would have been, it started only with, I think, about 30 employees. But the ambition was to, uh, to end up with about 100 employees in the foundry. And that would have been one of the bigger uh, enterprises in town. So it was ambitious, I think, for the time. Uh-huh. And then the part of this story that kind of shows a, a divide between the town and the college is this little episode with the restrictive race covenant mm. that gets proposed. I'll just yeah. read it. All lots in the tract are intended to be used solely by the Caucasian race, and no race or nationality other than those for whom the premises are intended shall use or occupy any building on any lot, except that this covenant shall not prevent occupancy by domestic servants of a different race or nationality employed by an owner or tenant. Yeah. Who proposed this and what happened with it? It came from Norris's office. He had a lieutenant who did most of the paperwork for this. The, the idea, people listening to this may be confused by it because uh, I, I used to run, uh, jog out by the middle school and go by the, the factory, the Donaldson factory out there. It doesn't show the original plans, which had imagined a residential neighborhood of 10 houses uh, immediately west, uh, excuse me, immediately east of the factory. And uh, the idea was that they would govern uh, who could live there in order to maintain the financial value, I guess, of this uh, real estate. But to the college's credit, as soon as this was proposed by the Marshalltown offices and so on, uh, Louis Phelps, who was the college treasurer and did most of the correspondence on this matter, Phelps just immediately said this wasn't going to happen and and, uh, it was excluded and the houses were never built either. But I mean, I I do think it important that the college at that moment took took a stand on this issue rather than accede to the plans that Norris had laid down. Right. And I guess it's perhaps not surprising. I mean, from the beginning, Grinnell as a town and college had, well, J.B. Grinnell had his abolitionist stance. So it's perhaps mm-hmm. not surprising in that sense, but it's an interesting way when, you know, not necessarily the race covenant reflected the sentiment of all the people living in the town, but no. certainly one person. Um, yeah. So... The college then sells the foundry in 1951 after about five or six years. Mm -hmm. So how did it work out for the college financially and in terms of their relationship with the furnace company in the town? Lennox uh, decided not to purchase uh, the foundry themselves, and they sold their lease with the option to purchase to Donaldson, which was a a Twin Cities uh, firm. Uh, made mufflers for heavy uh, machinery and so on. 
And uh, Donaldson uh, enlarged the property several times uh, during the time that they owned it. And at one time, I think there were more than 200 employees operating, uh, working out there at the factory. And it had a huge impact in town. It, uh, to my way of thinking, one of the most important things over and beyond the number of people working out there was the fact that it was a unionized labor force. Hmm. Uh, there had been several attempts to create unions at other uh, enterprises here in town that had not worked. Uh, local entrepreneurs were reluctant uh, to uh, deal with unions. But uh, the Donaldson Union survived all the way to the end, and uh, it, was a, it created, I think, a kind of uh, alternative population in town, not just a kind of commercial uh, business-type uh, layer, but also a, a working-class layer. Many of those people lived on the south side of town, and so the politics of town subsequently had a kind of north-south hmm. orientation that I think the Donaldson factory played into. The college did not make a lot of money out of this. I mean, Louis Phelps uh, created several sort of account, accounting sheets to try to total it up, but it looks as though the college may have cleared, depending on which one of these you look at, either 40-some thousand or 60-some thousand dollars, which wasn't a lot for all the effort and money that came in, but on the other hand, they got a lot of goodwill, I think, out of the mm. town. And, of course, they did contribute to the use of some property in town and, and uh, to create a kind of labor force in town. So there were good things to be had by it. But it was not a big financial success, I think, in the way we think about some of these more recent financial dealings that helped make the college a billion-dollar endowment. Right. Yeah, that one didn't didn't necessarily beef up the endowment, but still notable. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So let's move on to the second story, which involves the college's botanic garden, which mm -hmm. is no longer existent, mm -hmm. and St. Paul's Episcopal Church, which yeah. is. So I think now might be an appropriate time to talk a little bit more about Henry Conard, mm -hmm. who was a professor at Grinnell from 1906 to 1944. What should we know about him, especially in relation to this story in the botanic garden? Well, Conard was a botanist. <clears throat> he was hired because he was a well-known botanist. He was a Quaker. He'd grown up in the East and gotten all his education in the East. He'd published a widely regarded uh, book on lilies, water lilies, uh, before he came. <clears throat> so when he came, the idea about creating a botanical garden kind of came with him. And the college attempted to raise money to support the, the botanical garden. They never got as much as they wanted. They, they tried to raise, I think it was $10,000, but they never got that much raised. So Connor began planting things and scrimping as best he could. Uh, he arranged some connections with the Department of Agriculture and so on. So sometimes they got some uh, free samples of various seedlings and seeds and so on. But the idea was to get it going. And, and uh, over the course of time, uh, it was a fairly um, successful botanical garden. It was located just south of 6th Avenue uh, in the spot where St. Paul's uh, now, now stands. But uh, there was a, an attempt to create a kind of prairie section, a, a wooded section. And then there were several uh, areas that were devoted to uh, various vegetables and flowers and so on, just as used for his botany classes. We know that people uh, who took botany classes there would go over they, in their remem uh, reminiscences of, of taking botany. They'll talk about going and visiting the botanical garden and learning about various plants and so uh -huh. on. The area we're talking about is just right south of south of Berlin, kind of where 6th Avenue curves, mm -hmm. the intersection of 6th and State. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So we talked about the state of affairs at the college during this time period, around 1930s and 40s, with mm -hmm. reduced enrollment and increased debt. So the college at this point, which has a religious history of its own with congregationalist connections, mm -hmm. reaches out to the Episcopal Diocese of Iowa yeah. and asks them to sort of adopt Grinnell College. What is their motivation? 
President uh, John Nolan in the 30s had this idea. I don't know where it came from, who gave it to him, but it was Nolan who wrote to the um, Episcopal Bishop of Iowa proposing this relationship, and uh, the bishop brought it to the annual convention. The Episcopalians meet every year to discuss uh, their various businesses and so on, and they immediately acceded to it. There didn't seem to have been a great deal of uh, effort after that, except that in Episcopal literature and so on, Grinnell was cited as one of those institutions that, to, to which uh, Episcopal students might go. Uh-huh. And they did uh, begin to come. A fair number of students, uh, Episcopal students, began to attend the college. And this had an impact later, not so much in the, in the 1930s, but certainly in the 1940s, when a new bishop of Iowa, uh, a man by the name of uh, Haynes, uh, took up the the uh, reins, and it was his uh, intention to establish a chaplaincy on campus. And with the accession of the uh, the agreement of the board of trustees, a an Episcopal chaplain was appointed. Uh, he taught part time in the speech department, but the other part of his duties were to counsel uh, Episcopal students and also to regularly conduct Episcopal mass, which huh. he did. And uh, he was appointed in 1946, I guess it was. And uh, he stayed for a couple of years uh, in a house that the diocese owned on the corner of 8th and, and uh, Park. Right. As a result of this kind of formal adoption of the college mm-hmm. by the diocese, they got the Bishop of Iowa onto the Grinnell College Board of Trustees mm-hmm. as a member. That's right. Um, so at least nominally, they have influence with the college, and it sounds like more than just a nominal influence. How can you quantify the impact of the church on the college at this point, uh, even informally with the amount of Episcopal students on campus? Yeah, it, it's uh, hard to credit, I guess. Uh, George Drake, who was president of the college here after I gave the talk, we know that there were about 100, there were more than 100 Episcopal students in a population that still wasn't, a student population still wasn't very large. Uh, it's hard to credit that there were that many Episcopal students uh, here, but uh, they were, and uh, it's it's clear that uh, the college did not make it uncomfortable for them to be here, and the fact that they could uh, regularly attend uh, the Eucharist, the Episcopal lit- liturgy, and so on, made it uh, more comfortable for them. But yeah, it, it gave the college a kind of dimension that it had not had when it was imagined, certainly by J.B. Grinnell. I don't suppose he ever uh, had any idea that the high church would play any role in, in the college or the town. But it, it did change it, and it, it made it uh, helped, I guess, the college get through some of this difficult time we were talking about before. You can build foundries, but then there are other ways to bring students into the into the college, and the connections with the Episcopal Church was one of them. Right. And George also mentioned that, you know, at this time, the college didn't have an, an admissions department necessarily, and, you know, most of their recruiting, if you will, was done informally, whether it's through teachers or you know, religious leaders, and then the church itself kind of promoting people as a an influencer of sorts to head to these colleges. And yeah, like you mentioned, they made it comfortable for the Episcopal students there. There was a like a hangout spot for them mm-hmm. where they could listen to radio hour That's and right. communion and such. They also uh, allegedly had discounted rates for for some of the Episcopal students for tuition. Which yeah, is, yeah, that's right. That doesn't hurt also. <laughs> no, that's right. Yeah, there was a, there was good motivation. It's, it's worth remembering, I think, that the Grinnell College, we think of it now as a, a very cosmopolitan place. People come from all over, including all over the world. Uh, in the 20s and 30s, there were certainly people from other parts of the world, but it was largely a very domestic audience and very Iowa audience mm. and in, in many respects, a very Grinnell town uh, audience. Mm. So to connect with the Episcopal uh, Diocese of Iowa 
was important, I think, in bringing Iowa students to Grinnell College. So uh -huh. it, it had a kind of logic to it. Yeah. So how do these two narratives collide? We've got the Botanical Garden and the Episcopal Church. What happens? Well, I wish I knew the exact answer to this because it's a <laughs> fascinating dynamic. But it is true that Henry Conard left Grinnell in 1944 and went to the University of Iowa, which meant that there was not that same presence that had given impetus to creating the Botanical Garden. And in a way, made the botanical garden eligible for someone to deal with. And apparently that is what happened, although I say apparently because I don't really know. I haven't seen any document that confirms this. But it's pretty clear on that the uh, that Bishop Haynes and then his successor, a man by the name of Smith, uh, Gordon Smith, Bishop of uh, Iowa, understood that that property was available. And I don't know whether the Episcopal Diocese paid some additional money for that, I don't know, but they made the former uh, botanical garden home for the erection of a student center, uh, which later then became the scene of uh, what is now the church also. So there was a, a student center on the corner, where, which was also a worship center, but the idea was to add finally a church to it. And uh -huh. in the 1960s still, until about 1965, uh, there was not a full and independent parish. It continued as an, what they called an organized mission because it depended largely on students, mm -hmm. and the students came and went, but a kind of steady population here uh, required a little more time in order to get the financial resources for an independent parish. Uh -huh. So eventually, you know, how does this work out both for the town and the college and the Episcopal diocese in terms of religion in, in Grinnell and on campus? So where does this one... It was a good deal for the Episcopal Church. I, I, don't, I don't think there's any question about that. The, the parish in Grinnell had disappeared. Um, there had been Episcopalians here since about the 1870s, not very many of them, but there had been some Episcopalians here. There was a church on the south side of town that survived for a number of years. But by the late teens, by about the time World War I ended, it had more or less given up and, and disappeared. So the Diocese of Iowa was very happy to have a reason to uh, renew some Episcopal worship here. And the creation of the student, a separate building, a student center like that, and uh, to have the chaplain at hand and so on, I think that was, uh, that was a great boon for the Episcopal Church. Not so much for the college, I think. Uh, certainly they got that input of Episcopal students, and that carried on certainly into the 60s. But if you were to uh, take an inventory today, I don't know uh, who, who would do this, but if you were to count how many Episcopal students are on campus, I don't think you'd find very <laughs> many. We have some who come to, the, to St. Paul's now, but it's a handful. So from that point of view, it no longer matters very much. But the the initiative of a botanical garden had its own reasons, its own root, and so on. But unfortunately, those are that, that's now gone and not recoverable in that sense anymore. So it was a kind of a wash, I think, in terms of the final final result. Uh -huh. Okay, let's get to the the final story, which involves broader strokes of American history. I think um, as Japanese American students come to Grinnell in the middle of World War II, so. Executive Order 9066 has just been signed, February 19th, 1942, which led to the forced evacuation of all Japanese, including U.S.-born Japanese Americans from the West Coast, and the transport of over 100,000 people to relocation centers spread throughout the West, which were really internment camps. Yeah. So Grinnell ends up accepting some of these Japanese American students during this time. How did that happen? It, it's a wonderful story, and I think a great credit to the college. It's one of the stories I wish we'd talk about more because mm -hmm. I think it's a, a great credit to the college. Henry Conard had been a chair of the faculty 
which in the time of uh, President Nolan operated kind of like a dean of the faculty. Nolan had been dean himself before he became president, so he was comfortable having uh, his hand in a lot of different things. But Conard was very influential, and his nephew had graduated from Grinnell in 1935, uh, Joseph Conard, and uh, he was at work on the West Coast with the American Friends uh, organization. And he contacted his uncle here on campus, and he was worried about uh, these students, uh, Japanese-American students, they were American citizens, of course. They'd been born in the United States. He was worried that these uh, students would be uh, sent off to these uh, camps, these internment camps, and he wondered whether or not Grinnell College couldn't help. They were pursuing other colleges too, but Grinnell was one of them, to take some of these students and provide them with a scholarship to make it possible for them to attend college and avoid ending up in these camps. And Conard uh, responded very favorably, and uh, four students were admitted for the first year. They arrived in the spring of 1942, so they were housed over the summer and so on before the academic year began. And there were subsequent uh, groups of students who were admitted uh, during the war years. But uh, it was an important gesture, I think. And uh, it, it was one of those things that uh, I think the college can stand very, very proudly of. Uh -huh. So three of these students, William Kiyasu, mm -hmm. Barbara Takahashi, mm -hmm. Akiko Hosoi, mm -hmm. those are the ones that you kind of focused on in your yes. story. How were these students received on campus? You know, uh, a, a Grinnell College uh, student in uh, the 1990s, I think it was, did a major project trying to find out what the impressions were. George Carroll was his name. And he contacted many of these people. Takahashi, unfortunately, is now uh, dead. Uh, Kiyasu is now, too. But um, so we have actually records of them. It's not only did they accidentally uh, remark on what it was like, but uh -huh. we have the reflections. And uh, they were generally very... Uh, grateful for the, rece the reception in the college. We know that uh, the students found ways to uh, embrace them. I think one of the most fascinating ways, and one that I mentioned in the talk, has to do with the attempt that was levied by the uh, Iowa State uh, Legislature in order to try to prohibit Iowa colleges from accepting these students. Mm -hmm. The theory was that uh, if Iowa boys had to be out fighting the war and so on, why should these students uh, be receiving an education? But uh, to its credit, the Grinnell uh, S&B, the Scarlet and Black, uh, published a kind of blistering editorial making fun of these uh, propositions. And both the students and the faculty passed uh, resolutions that uh, embraced the students and rejected this notion of uh, of the legislature that somehow or another these students should be sent back to where they came from or sent back to these internment camps. Uh -huh. And so on campus, I think they got, generally speaking, a very good, uh, good reception. It was harder in town, I think, because uh, the war, of course, sent uh, young men, basically, uh, off into war. Many of them were fighting Japanese on islands in the Pacific, certainly as the war ground on, this was true. But even after Pearl Harbor, it was hard to look at someone who seemed Japanese and think that everything was okay if uh, your warships or your nephew or whoever it was went down in uh, Pearl Harbor. So in town, it was not so good. The, the uh, Japanese-American students themselves provided relatively few examples of problems, but uh, Kiyasu and others remarked that being there on the weekends in town on the weekends was a bad idea. And most of the farmers came in on Saturdays to do most of their shopping. And at that time, uh, Kiyasu and others said that it was just uh, dangerous, really, to be in town, that the townsfolk or the farmers and so on. 
said things and did things to them that made it, made it feel uncomfortable. So in many ways, I think the campus ended up being kind of an island, a place for people to take refuge from. But um, yeah, it was it was a mixed uh, mixed reception, I'm sure. Yeah. And then what happens to the students? Do they finish at Grinnell? Most of them did not finish here. Uh, and I think my, my own reading of this is, is pretty understandable. Uh, the students who came here, uh, Kiasu at that time had already finished his second year at University of California, Berkeley. He'd grown up in San Francisco, gone to San Francisco High School. Takahashi and Hasoi had both grown up in uh, Los Angeles, large cities. They'd gone to large high schools. Bigger than Grinnell. Bigger than Grinnell. Uh, the graduating class, Takahashi and Hasoi, were in the same uh, Roosevelt High School in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, their class was 530 or something like that, which wasn't that much smaller than the whole college that right. they uh, came to. So th they came to a very different environment, a town that was essentially uh, white or nearly all white, nearly all Protestant and nearly all... Um, small Midwestern in, in lots of ways. So that it was not a good place for them to be, an easy place for them to be. So most uh -huh. did not stay here. Takashi did, however. She graduated and uh, uh, later wrote that she was uh, appreciative for it. Uh, the others who came in subsequent years, there were a number who graduated, about half, I would say, uh, who came here graduated from Grinnell. The others transferred to other larger institutions. Mm. But never forgot Grinnell. I, even those who transferred elsewhere were grateful for what mm. had happened at Grinnell. And I know there's a an art piece by Barbara Takahashi that's, I believe, in JRC. Yeah, you know, I didn't. I had been up to the student affairs any number of times. I hadn't paid that much attention to it. Takahashi was an art major when she was here, mm. and uh, she went on to a rather accomplished uh, career in Los Angeles. She returned to Los Angeles as, as an artist. But uh, after her death, some friends of hers purchased one of her. Uh, works, and it now hangs opposite the uh, Student Affairs Office in the third floor of JRC. All right, so summing it all up, looking at these three stories together, why did you choose these three to kind of tell some stories about the college, and, and what do you think they show us? Well, I wanted uh, I, I chose them in part because I wanted to do some things that are a little different, and I think each of them has a little different uh, page uh, to the relations with the town. And it's not all financial when we talk about the zones of confluence and so on. I think people mainly think about uh, financial commitments. You know, does the college own all this property? Or uh -huh. What are they going to do with it and so on? But it's a much more complicated algorithm, I think. And uh, I like the way that different aspects of the world or the economy interact with how the college and the community relate. And the college's current well-being, I think, uh, helps in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, folk in town can attend lots of events without any charge. It's a great, uh, a great thing. The world comes to their doorstep. But in other ways, the college seems like a foreign country. And I mm -hmm. think uh, these episodes that I looked at, there are many more, of course, lots of different ways we might look at it, but they reveal some of the complexity, I think, that uh, connects the town with the college. And so I, I like to think about them and, and their complex relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And historians like to talk about continuity and change. And there's a lot of discussion now, and I'm sure there has been for a while here in town and on campus about the divide between the college and town. But these stories do show how, how complex that relationship can mm -hmm. be. Um, how does learning about the history of the college and the town and how they've grown and changed help us understand where we currently are? It's a good, uh, very good question. I, I think about it a lot. My, my own observation, I'm retired now, so I've been out of the traces for about 10 years or so. It's sometimes difficult, I think, uh, to look back on the institution that you were part of and notice 
how different it is. And uh, it's easy, I think, to regret it and say, well, when I was there, we did this, that, or the other thing. And I think history, um, not just with respect to the college, but to our understandings globally, we have to understand that things do change. Mm. And uh, one of the advantages of looking at history, I think, is to give us an appreciation for that fact and its endurance and remind ourselves that what we contribute, as helpful as it may have been at the time, is a feature of its own time. And uh, under changing circumstances, there will be still more change. And it's important, I think, to be ready for it and to be able to accept it and adapt to it. Well put. <laughs> um, thank you, Dan, for sharing That's these stories. And, uh, you know, I hope I hope people enjoy listening to them as much as I did. Oh, they're... That's nice you say. Thanks for giving me a chance to talk about it. I enjoyed it. That was Dan Kaiser, Emeritus Professor of History here at the college. He has a blog, a treasure trove really, called Grinnell Stories, and I command you to check it out. He's done an incredible job digging up stories from Grinnell's past, and there's enough on those blogs to satisfy your Grinnell history fix, at least until the time I get Dan back on the show. If you want to see some of the pictures from some of the episodes we talked about, check them out on the podcast webpage. By the way, a little note on the story about the Episcopal Church. Dan and I kind of glossed over it, but if you listen to the first episode of this season about the history of congregationalism at the college, that relationship with the Episcopal Church is even more interesting. The Congregationalists who founded the college were in direct opposition to Anglicanism, of which the Episcopal Church is a member. So to have this school, founded by Congregationalists, embrace Episcopalians a century later, it's a huge shift one that might have caused the Iowa band members to turn over in their graves. So check out that episode if you haven't already. It's the first one of season two. Speaking of all this town gown talk, the past week the college hosted two CNN town halls with presidential hopefuls Tom Steyer and Joe Biden. If you saw it live on TV, you only saw the tip of the iceberg. But being here in Grinnell gave some of us a peek inside all that goes into a production of that size. We'll have some stories on the town hall experience on our website in the next few days, and hopefully we'll do a little recap on the next podcast. Until then, that's all for this episode. Next time, we're going to talk to George Drake about the legendary Joe Rosenfield, who left as big a mark on the college as anybody. George finished up his biography of Joe earlier this year, so we took some time to talk about the 1925 grad and longtime trustee and his legacy at Grinnell. Music for today's show comes from Brett Newski, Pottington Bear, and Will Bennett. If you'd like to contact the show, email us at podcast at grinnell.edu or check out our website, grinnell.edu slash podcast, for more information about the guests from today's show. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. Stay weird, Grinnellians. Grinnellians.